in 17. I am a vampire, and you are mortal. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to This Podcast Sucks. The show where we take a bite out of the vampire genre. We'll be following all manner of fanged fiends through the past 127 years of film and television. From Nosferatu to Twilight, I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Elliot. And this week, we will be talking about the 1936 universal horror film, uh, Dracula's Daughter. And so Dracula's Daughter... Yes, yes. Uh, (laughs) We're... I think we're both genuinely excited to talk about this one in a way that we maybe have not been for some past ones, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I really, really enjoyed this one. Like I was saying to you earlier, like, you know, the performances and story and everything are all great. But I'm also just like, oh, my God, it's 1936 and like film techniques have developed and like we have good sound mixing now. And um, yes. And, yeah. 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 This does feel a lot more technically. Polished. Yeah, yeah. Polished is a great word. Um, some of the past films that we've covered, a consistent thing that's come up is that the cinematography and the editing are just like super basic, very stagey. Mm-hmm. And Mm. this film, I was personally especially impressed by the lighting, Um, but this was definitely a film where I was like, okay, like we're thinking more critically about what we can do with the camera and, you know, staging and, you know, it doesn't have to look like a play. So, Mm -hmm. yes. So (laughs) this film was uh, getting into some of the kind of cast and crew and production team behind this. This film was directed by Lambert Hillier and the writer. It's, it's interesting because um, it that's simple. And then it immediately becomes very complicated because there are seven, six or seven writers credited, um, maybe even more than that. Really? Yeah, That's surprising considering how I feel like it's it's a com it's common knowledge. Like the more writers a film has, the more um, disjointed the film is going to feel. But yeah, um, I mean, I thought the film had a pretty was pretty tonally consistent and had a pretty clear storyline plot beats like it was well paced and all of that i thought yeah i thought the same thing because today you know if i look at an imdb page and i look and i see more than three writers credited i have a sinking feeling (laughs) and i'm just like (laughs) oh "Oh." yeah exactly i'm like this is gonna be a mess um (laughs) and you know that's for for people who are interested in why we might feel that way obviously there's the idea of like too many cooks in the kitchen mm. of just yeah. like that's a lot of different creative minds and Hollywood is not known for its humble <laughs> and team player oriented people. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times when there are that many writers, it it typically um, suggests a lot of studio interference um, and that yes. there might have been people who were fired or, you know, real creative differences between the studio and the creative team. And what's interesting is that was kind of the case with this film, but impressively enough, they actually managed to produce something really successful and that has stood the Mm -hmm. test of time in many ways. 
um, despite the interference from um, from Universal. So we can circle back to the writers, but it was produced by E.M. Asher. He was like the onset producer um, and the kind of exec producer above it all was Lamel, I think. Um, what is his? Oh, uh, Carl Lemley Jr.? Yeah, Carl Lemley Jr. was our, sort our of Our favorite the, Nepo hire? Yes, our presiding, <laughs> reigning producer of many things. Yes. Um, and actually, he is the inspiration for um, for George Clooney's character in Hail Caesar. Um, he was kind oh. of known as like a fixer. And he would kind of, you know, make problems go away. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I haven't seen that movie, but I think you're thinking of Josh Brolin's character. Because oh. George Clooney was the actor. <laughs> yes, no, you're, you're 100% <laughs> I was about to say, correct. Did Carl Emley Jr. go into acting? <laughs> uh, no, you are 100% correct. Josh Brolin's character. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's a small town, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so the film stars Otto Kruger as Dr. Jeffrey Garth, Gloria Holden as Countess Maria Zaleska, Dracula's daughter, Marguerite Churchill as Janet Blake, Irving Pitchell as Sandor, and Nan Gray as Lily, and then Gilbert Emery as Sir Basil, Basil Humphrey, Scotland Yard, <laughs> I guess depending on if you want to be more Scottish or more british with the pronunciation there and then edward van sloan as professor van helsing and there are other actors credited but these are our major players and you know mm -hmm. the people that the story yeah. really revolves around mm -hmm. um, yes so that's kind of our production team although actually i should because we just mentioned you know the higher quality of the of the cinematography and other elements like that. Uh, the film's uh, director of photography was George Robinson, and it was edited by Milton Carruth. And so that's our major crew there. And I'm trying to think of where to start because this film has a lot of really interesting things about it. You know, like the film itself has a lot of really interesting themes. And then the story behind the production is also kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's obviously like a lot of stuff to do with its legacy. But mm -hmm. I think why don't, yeah, let's start with how this even, how they <laughs> even got to shooting yes. this whole thing. So as mm -hmm. I mentioned, there are quite a lot of writers credited um, for this. And so this is a bit of a meandering tale, <laughs> but one of the credits... Oh, and I will also say that there is some um, there is some dispute about who is credited for what in what way. So mm -hmm. um, Wikipedia credits the writers differently than um, the American Film Institute's catalog does AFI. Mm -hmm. um, so I am going to kind of defer to AFI just because like that is a film specific institute. Um and so mm -hmm. they are more likely to be really serious about making sure they've got all of that information correct. So the story was suggested by Oliver <laughs> Jeffries, who <laughs> worked for MGM at the time. Um, and initially, I thought that suggested meant like the story was 
by him, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. It seems that he might have literally suggested, what if we make a sequel to Dracula and it's his daughter? Like that's <laughs> like that's the sense that's wow, the sense that can, I get. Yeah. Really yeah. feel that creative stamp on the film. <laughs> yeah. So 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 this was for MGM and then um well he worked for MGM and he wanted to purchase the rights for MGM, but Universal swooped in and they purchased the rights. And so mm. while this was happening, a treatment was written by John Balderstan, Balderston, Ston, John Balderston. Um, and that treatment was rejected for some of its objectionable content, like the Hayes mm. office, I believe, rejected it. Mm-hmm. Um and then they brought in R.C. Sheriff, who wrote a first draft of the script, which was also rejected by the Hayes office. And mm-hmm. then he went on to write three further drafts that underwent revisions each time. And mm-hmm. there continued to be a back and forth with the Hayes office and the AMPP. Um, and Charles S. Belden was a kind of a dramaturg and helped and maybe an editor on all of those drafts. So he offered revisions throughout Sheriff's writing process. And so Garrett Fort is credited as the screenwriter for the feature. Um, oh, okay. No, I remember. <laughs> so the treatment that was, re- so Oliver Jeffries comes up with an idea. Universal buys the rights to that idea. John Balderston writes a treatment that is rejected by the studio and the Hayes office. Um, Garrett Fort, yes, Garrett (laughs) Fort writes a first draft of the, a first draft of this, the script for this film that is also rejected by the Hayes office. R.C. Sheriff is brought in to work on the future ensuing drafts which there continues to be communication back and forth between the Hayes office, the the AMPP, Universal, and the creative team. Charles S. Belden is acting as a dramaturg slash editor, co-writer on these revisions. When you look at the, when you watch the film, Garrett Fort is credited as the screenwriter. And if you look at Wikipedia, he's credited as the screenwriter. But... R.C. Sheriff wrote the shooting script for the film. Like when they shot the film, the script that they shot on was Sheriff's script, not Garrett Fort's original script. So (laughs) I feel like this is no one's film. (laughs) Yeah, it really written by committee, you could say. Yeah. Um, Which, like you said, normally that would go horribly, but I'm surprised the final product turned out as well as it did. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the perseverance that you'll see in Hollywood. And, you know, at this time, you know, I think it might be easy to think of, you know, filmmakers and the industry as very prudish at the time. Mm -hmm. But there, you know, clearly people were constantly in resistance of the Hayes code and constantly in the resistance of the Hayes Mm -hmm. office. There were people who wanted to tell complex adult, you know, difficult stories 
They wanted to deal with themes that the Hayes office was just simply not willing to allow people to do. And this mm-hmm. is like institutional censorship, you know? Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it is, it's really interesting reading this background to see that they were just trying, they were really fighting to make this movie and tell this story and they yeah. faced resistance mm-hmm. at every step. Yeah. And a lot of films that wanted to have material that the Hayes code would have objected to or um just demanded that they do not put in the film or cut they mm-hmm. just had to be kind of more sneaky about it or coded mm-hmm. it was like it's a very coded period for films where it's like yeah oh, okay i know what they really mean by that so yes so an example that's totally true like kind of figuring out ways to include the things you want to include but still flying under the radar of the Hayes code mm-hmm. so yep. um we have some documentation of some letters that went back and forth between these various offices. Like one of the early um, letters was Carl Wimmel. Is that how you Wimmel? Lemley. Lemley. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of like Flamel, the creator of the philosophers. Um, Lemley. So there's a letter from Lemley to the AMPP, I believe, acknowledging that the first draft is going to be discarded entirely. And so Mm -hmm. some of the correspondence, a lot of the objections were around um, a scene specifically between Zaleska and a woman named Lily that Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about a lot. Um, And so there was um, consistently that scene was cut back, cut down and cut down and cut down. Um, But the kinds of things that you were saying in terms of like coding things is you know, there would be a lot of like changing of camera angles or shortening shots Mm -hmm. or, you know, cutting away from things at the last moment. And those are things that still happen today. You know, those are exactly the conversations that studios and filmmakers continue to have um, with. Well, I feel like now some films who have material that might be objectionable depending on where the film is screened internationally they deliberately shoot these scenes so they can be edited um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i can't remember oh i watched this documentary great documentary everyone should watch it called uh this film has not yet been rated Mm-hmm. And they talk to a bunch of people. They talk to John Waters a lot, which, of course, they're going to talk to John Waters <laughs> yeah. about this subject. Yeah. Um, but they I wish I could remember the what's it's that film that's like made with Barbies and it's like spies. Oh, oh, oh um, that's uh, Todd. Is that Todd Haynes um, first film he made with the Barbies about uh, um, Karen Carpenter? They're no, it's Hold like on. a kind of gross out kind of South Park kind of vibes. Like oh, there's okay. spies yeah. in it and maybe there are Barbies the whole time, but there's a scene with Barbies. I don't know. Um, yeah, there. It, it's I wish I should. <laughs> it didn't occur to me until just now to come up with this. But the, this because you've reminded me that, of this really perfect example of this. So there was this film mm-hmm. that was very early 2000s, kind of gross out, really immature, kind of shock um, comedy. I almost said shock horror, mm-hmm. but it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sex scene with between two Barbies 
And they said in the first cut of the film that they sent to the MPAA, which is what it's called now. Oh, I think um, you're thinking of Team America. Team America, yes. That like it just clicked for me when you said South Park like and I'm like, wait, a sex scene with dolls. I'm like, oh, okay, the famous Team America. Yes. Okay, so Team America. And so in the first cut of that film that they sent to the end. Oh, also I low-key love that film. I'm sorry, but for no, okay. I, I like I really enjoy that film, even though it's I it haven't is, I think I watched it, but with a bad person. And so that kind of uh, like. Yeah, um, no, it is very like Matt Stone and Trey Parker, South Park, early 2000s mm-hmm. humor, both sides wrong and dumb. But um, <laughs> I don't know. There's there's I, I will always be thankful that it gave us um, uh, the what was it called? The song he's singing about. Um, Oh, America. Harbors. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. Well, that one's great. It honestly has a banger soundtrack. Um, But the one where he's like, Imperial Harbor sucked. Um, The movie. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So the first cut they send, that sex scene between the Barbies was something absolutely absurd, like 10 full minutes. (laughs) Because they didn't want a 10 minute Barbie sex scene. What they wanted was to, um, it was like a, it was like a bargaining technique where they were Mm -hmm. like, we will send them the most insane, absurd, ridiculous X-rated thing that we know they're never going to say yes to so that we can negotiate our way to the sex scene we actually want. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so that then they feel like they have like done their due gil- due diligence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so and there there was like all sorts of stuff in this original scene that was like I think there was like scat in this and they were like we're not we know we're we know we're not going to get to keep this. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 but it it's like, you know, you throw just the most extreme thing at them by the time you get to the the sex scene you had originally intended they'll think it's pretty tame yes yeah exactly like that was very much the that was very Mm -hmm. much the idea of like you know ask for ask for double what you actually want um Mm -hmm. and so then when you get what you actually want the Mm -hmm. other person feels like they've done an amazing job of like negotiating (laughs) yeah the mpa people being like yes we do not have puppets eating shit we did it (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly and so another interesting thing that that film kind of talks about is the differing approaches Mm -hmm. that the hayes office the um, AMPP and now the MPAA um, have taken to this process of um, I'm I'm just going to keep saying censorship because like they probably wouldn't call it that, but it is. Um, And so one of the things that came up was that at times it's very vague, you know, where they'll, you'll send them your film and you're maybe hoping for a PG 13 and R whatever. And they come back with their and they're like okay it's an r but we won't Mm -hmm. really tell you why you know they'll be like it's an r because of violence but they won't really Mm -hmm. go into depth about if your film has multiple scenes of violence they won't really go into further depth or like it's an r Mm -hmm. for drug use but they won't be super specific and then there have been periods where they have been incredibly specific you know where people will send in a film and they'll get their rating back and they'll be like, you got an R, 
but if you want a PG-13, cut this line, cut this shot, mm-hmm. remove, the, like, cut this many seconds from your sex scene, um, mm-hmm. shoot this scene from this angle, not that angle. And so that that is, I think, a really interesting relationship to think about. Um, yeah. Because in some ways, being very vague feels less aggressive from the censorship angle but it also creates this like pervasive environment of fear i'm guessing where mm-hmm. you are really worried that you're never going to get the cut that they approve and right. getting an r rating or even an x rating can be devastating for a film yes and yeah it can destroy a film's chances of really even making it to audiences especially for an x rated film Right. I'm trying to think. I think the last theatrically released, um, because it's uh, for our listeners, it is no longer X anymore. Um, any rating um, higher than an R is NC-17. I'm not oh, quite sure okay. when that You're right. Yeah, happened. <laughs> You're right. I mean, no, I mean, personally, I think it sounds cooler if you give a film an X rating, but um, yeah. fine, NC-17. Um, but I think the last theatrically released NC-17 movie, um, or at least one that got a wide release, maybe? It was either wide or limited with Shameless. Um, I want to say, I you know, I could be totally wrong, but I feel like now um, movies that do have that kind of explicit content typically go to just streaming now and they're not rated. Mm-hmm. Maybe my brain is just melting a little bit and I'm getting it conflated with like Blonde, which had a pretty infamous um nc-17 rating and that was really straight to netflix i it might have gotten a limited release though blonde like with uh god on a day armis as marilyn monroe oh okay i was thinking i was thinking of atomic blonde and i was like that Uh, film got an (laughs) nc-17 no no yeah no the um the 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 trauma porn marilyn monroe movie got an nc-17 okay yes i've read the book and yeah, both both versions. If you want to just be depressed for hours, mm-hmm. <laughs> watch it. Yeah, it's day. you told me about it, and I was like, "Yeah, wow, a real downer of a film." Um, uh, yeah, it is yeah. a real downer of the film, and honestly, not even as explicit as some things that happen in the book. I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah. If you want your yeah, if you want your depressing Marilyn Monroe fan fiction, that is the book for you. <laughs> Also, I'm guessing that and the, the switch from X to NC-17 is probably for two reasons. One, to like break the connection to the porn industry. Yeah, and, that's a good point. And two, NC-17 refers to like, I guess the C stands for customers, but like our films, if you're with an adult, you can buy a ticket. But NC-17 films, no one below the age of 17 can purchase mm-hmm, a ticket right. regardless of if they're escorted by an adult over the age of 25. Okay. I thought that was the same thing for R though. I thought for R you had to be 17 or older and oh. to buy a ticket yourself. I'm not sure. Okay. But I thought you could be younger if you were with an adult. Yes. If you're with someone at, you know, honestly, it's kind of messed up, but you could literally yeah. bring a six-year-old if you're an adult and buy a ticket for an R-rated film for yeah. them. But um, NC-17, you can't okay. do that. Oh, you can't Yeah, do that. that's okay. the difference. Um, so oh, R-rated, you can be accompanied by an adult. Okay. NC-17, mm-hmm. adults only, like no one mm-hmm. allowed in. Um, right. 
And okay. so, yeah. And so if you've ever seen a trailer for a film and at the end it said not rated or this film has mm-hmm. not yet been rated, that is because the studio and the MPAA are still in a back and forth negotiation about mm-hmm. how to rate the film. And so a lot of times you'll see that for, you know, like adult films where they're probably like fighting for an R rating yeah. or fighting uh-huh. for a PG-13 rating. Right. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that typically films don't really like I'm guessing that there isn't much arguing about like, oh, I want this film to be PG versus G or like I want this film <laughs> to be PG versus PG-13. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that will that's kind of with the film has not yet been rated. Like that's what's going on there is that mm. there's probably some unhappiness on the part of the studio that they haven't gotten the rating that they wanted. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that the MPA is probably like putting their foot down to a degree. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's just a little aside on, you know, why we have this crazy writing process. Um, And this was actually the process around Dracula's daughter was so contentious that they started shooting the film before they finished the script. The script was not finished until three weeks into shooting. Um, Which that can happen. I feel like a fair amount or a fair bit of times like mm-hmm. a film starts shooting, even if a script is not entirely complete or they're still changing the script. Yeah, like Iron Man, I think that was a the thing they talked about a lot, that mm-hmm. the script was kind of like being written as they shot the film. The first time, Which Man. makes a lot of sense because that seems like a movie that's entirely kind of it's evolution. It's kind of based around who is playing Tony yeah. and I, I like that's a movie yeah. that was definitely written around like Robert Downey Jr.'s like persona. Yeah, and Jeff Bridges and Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. and that that film had a really like strong cast and yes. John Favreau mm-hmm. directed the first Iron Man film and his background is in comedy and so mm-hmm. it makes sense that his directing style would be a lot more flexible when it comes mm-hmm. to the script yeah. because that oh, tends yeah, to you... serve comedy better. You know he, Robert Downey Jr. was just, like, improvising all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm guessing there was also, like, they'd never done, like, MCU films up to that point had been flops. You know, people, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Iron Man was really the beginning of these films being successful. So I'm sure there was right. a lot of, like, fear um, coming from the studio. Oh, yeah. Well, I think, especially around casting Robert Downey Jr., because he was still, I think, believe, considered a little bit of a liability given his um, uh, past uh, issues with um, drug addiction and mm-hmm. um, arrests and um, kind of his career, um, you know, losing his career a bit from that. And they, I think they initially wanted Tom Cruise. They wanted like a bigger selling name. But yes, I think they did. John John Favreau really fought for Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Thankfully. Well, everyone they asked said no. Like literally mm-hmm. everyone they asked said no, either because, because it Super wasn't Hero enough money. Success. Yeah, because they weren't yeah, successful. Like, Everything I mean, at that point, like, there'd been two terrible Hulk movies. And, you well, know. I, no, there'd just been the one. Oh, uh, okay. The, the second bad one came out after the first Iron Man. Oh, okay. Uh, but I mean, up until that point, you really just had... Um, you had superhero films that did well financially and critically, like Spider-Man 2, Batman Begins, but the, it, mm-hmm. it hadn't cross, crossed the threshold where they would become like 
kind of these huge yes. cultural trends, yeah. big massive money makers, which I yeah. think changed that year with the Dark Knight and Iron Man. Yes, yeah. And I think, um, and speaking to Marvel specifically, they had had the Hulk film, which I don't think was that successful. <laughs> and then they had no, Daredevil no. and Elektra, which oh God, were wow. both bombs that were hated by <laughs> critics and audiences. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, Just hit after yeah. hit. <laughs> yeah. So Marvel, Marvel at that point was like really on shaky ground and it's very interesting how for a while there everyone was like oh marvel is like the one to watch and like dc Mm -hmm. sucks and it's like that was not always the case it's like a very nice Mm -hmm. like a great pr blow blow up glow up on the part of marvel that they got that reputation yeah i mean before Christopher Nolan swooped in with Batman. Haha, <laughs> see what I did there. Um, we really just had um, the first two Spider-Mans doing, I feel like, the best critically and financially. And those weren't even technically Marvel. Those were Sony. Like, Sony yes. had the rights still yeah. to Marvel. Yeah. Um, or not and, Marvel, Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. And I mean, that has persisted. That has continued. That was an issue that plagued them for... Hulk was also someone with split ownership. And, mm-hmm. um, and then... At the time, Fox Searchlight owned the X-Men. So that's why you'll notice that for the first 10 years of the MCU, like, I think this is so fascinating. For the first, like, 10 years of the MCU, Fox owned the word mutant. So, like, you couldn't say, because that was an X-Men thing. The X-Men were mutants. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, if you watch the MCU films, you'll hear a lot of, like, meta humans and um those freaks <laughs> yeah yeah um or enhanced humans or like things like that because Bio they can't <laughs> yeah because they can't say mutant and then hulk That's was hilarious. also a character that could only have a certain number of minutes of screen time um which is a real shame wow. because you know not being able to use mark ruffalo to his fullest extent is like so, it's heartbreaking oh, wow. um yeah. And we also should mention that Blade, we cannot forget Blade. Blade was a very early Marvel franchise as well. Yes. Um, yes, and unfortunately and, um, experienced diminishing returns at the box office and critically. Yes. And I actually learned a fun fact from uh, one of my um, professors in at CU. Blade was made because Wesley Snipes had been fighting for years to do Black Panther. And so Blade was kind of, I guess, his like his acquiescence or consolation prize. Oh, my God. Wow. I have to say it is fascinating to imagine a late 1990s Wesley Snipes Black Panther. Right? Um, and I mean, it, yeah, because yeah, I remember that being kind of part of the uh, the Black Panther discourse when the first movie came out, which was, this is great. We have like our first black lead superhero movie and people mm-hmm. kind of coming out and going, um, excuse me, but yeah. have we all forgotten Blade and Wesley Snipes. But um, yeah, so that's that's fascinating, I think. Yeah. And, and the first Blade was uh, directed by Guillermo del Toro, I think. Uh, the second one. Oh, the yeah. second one. Okay. Yeah. So like really mm-hmm. big, it, it is, it's honestly, it's like, it. it's unsurprising when you think about like just how deep racism and anti-blackness runs in the film industry that yeah. a lot of people either don't know about Blade or have like forgotten it. 
entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is which is unfortunate. And I really hope that uh Mahershala Ali gets to make his blade, which he's been yeah. trying they've been trying to do that for years now. And Yes, I was gonna say, and now yeah. they've like announced Mahershala Ali as blade now but like there that was like before covid and i haven't heard anything about that yeah i think there's just been a lot of issues with um the script and the storyline and which is unfortunate because blade i think is ripe material for really great awesome movies and mahershala ali would be an amazing blade and yeah yeah and i think if they could just I think that one of the probably the difficulties that they're having is like shoehorning Blade into the quippy kind of unserious vibe that that unfortunately, like it was so successful with Iron Man. And then they decided this is our thing. Every single MCU film is going to have this tone. Every single MCU film is going to have its Tony Stark. Yeah, I would argue that um, kind of quippiness that became i guess like a just a corporate mandated necessity in a lot of marvel films i i I would argue that started more with joss whedon doing the first avengers because that's what joss whedon was known for which was like that quippy um you know ensemble kind of banter um but yes no i agree like how do you put a blade movie in there and um i also think blade probably wasn't really um thought of as much when black panther came out and everyone was saying yay our first black led superhero film um maybe because blade also is kind of that uh multi-genre film where it's like it is a superhero film but it's also a horror film and like yeah we don't i feel like anytime a movie has you throw in horror into a movie no matter regardless of whatever Mm -hmm. genre it is it's immediately like i don't know not considered as much or as highly yeah like I don't know. I mean, the awards shows like the Golden Globes and the Oscars still don't know what to do with horror. Like that's a common critique of the Oscars, which is, I think, the last, I mean, I guess you could, yeah, Get Out actually. Get Out had a a fair bit of nods and it won Best Original Mm -hmm. Screenplay. But in terms of like getting a Best Picture nod or even a Best Picture win, like, mm. Yeah, it is. It is pretty, especially because we're in such a renaissance of horror right now. Like yes. we are having some of the best horror films that have been made in decades and decades or have mm-hmm. been coming out in the past 10 to yeah. 15 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. But like, like we said in our Titan episode, like you have a movie that wins the Palm Door, like, mm-hmm. and it, it's not even nominated for best international film at the Oscars. And yeah. That's absurd. <laughs> yeah, it, it is absurd. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think we should probably. What? Yes. What? What? What, <laughs> what are aside. we talking about again? Yeah. What an aside. Yeah. Talking about yeah. vampires or something. We might have to. We might have to move some stuff around. <laughs> Just. For... We might have. This might be a two-parter. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be. That'd be really funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, because. Yes. Okay. Because I realized that yet again, my chauffeuring, I realized that when we, when we started, I didn't even give like a three sentence description of this film. We've just been talking about the production and it's like producing what? Yeah. No, you said, no, you said it when the, the one of the 500 screenwriters pitched the idea and he's like, what if it's about Dracula's daughter? So like, there you go. Our listeners had 
Um, so to give you guys a little something to go off of other than the title, um, this film tells the story of Countess Mariah, um, Maria, Mariah, um, Zaleska. Mm -hmm. We're just going to call her Zaleska because I think that's how she's kind of referred to throughout the film and in a lot Mm -hmm. of the like literature. Yeah. So Countess Zaleska, the daughter of Count Dracula and herself a vampire, Following Dracula's death, she believes that by destroying his body, she will be free of his influence and no longer be a vampire. When this Mm -hmm. fails, she turns to a psychiatrist, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, for help in the hopes that he will essentially be able to therapize her into not being a vampire anymore. (laughs) Yeah. This starts to fall apart, leading Zaleska to kidnap Garth's it says assistant is she not his sister no she's she's his sister what you got sister from that relationship um i was like these are (laughs) these are weird siblings um wow they don't even have the same last name and yeah i really misread that um Uh, fascinating i don't know what they were doing in the 30s um yeah, I was like, maybe siblings talk to each other that way. Um, that, is, that is so funny. <laughs> and definitely like changes, changes some things, yeah, actually. I bet about... the movie makes a lot more sense to you now. <laughs> it really does, I have to say. <laughs> okay, so this, um, when this plan falls apart and um, Dr. Garth becomes less cooperative, The Countess kidnaps his assistant, Janet, and takes her to Transylvania, leading to a final... The description says battle. I am harshly disputing the term battle. Um, There is a final confrontation and honestly conversation (laughs) that happens. It just keeps getting downgraded. It's like, battle's not right. Confrontation? No, no. It's more like a conversation. I guess there is there is a series of events, some of which include physical violence. Um, but sure, I think yeah. battle is really um, that's overstating. Generous. Yeah, yeah, it's very generous. Um, no battles <laughs> to be found here. A, a battle, battle of the of minds. minds. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. A battle of wits. Yes. Yeah. Oh gosh, we need to watch Princess Bride at some point for our episode pick. Such a good movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get there. Um, <laughs> Yes. So that is that is kind of we've given some background on how this film was written, how this film kind of made it to the filming stage, the production stage. And um, when we talk about the legacy of this film, we'll get back into some of those details because Mm -hmm. they are really interesting. But I do think that we've kind of set the stage for some of the you you know like we can get into the story itself and so yeah and so our film um i will say this had the most dynamic and interesting opening title sequence of the films we've covered so far it was very atmospheric Mm -hmm. we had some like slow fades in and out of these like moody interiors (laughs) and it was nice yeah did you also notice that these halls and entranceways had a certain shape to them oh were they the set of frankenstein again no no i was just like these are like very vaginal shaped halls and entranceways wow i could be over like just prescriptive reading this because this was supposed to have like queer code like if you're picking up 
Yannick vibes, then I believe that they're there. Um, I'm just saying, I was just like, kind of like, hmm, interesting. I made a note of it. So no, that's very cool. I did not. I liked it. I didn't notice that about it. Um, <laughs> that's really great. So I think that this is um, one of our most exciting opening shots yes. that we've covered. Yeah. And it's a very, very, I think, clear and, and beautiful reference to Dracula because we yes. open on a wide shot of like a kind of gothic, wide, mm. curving stone staircase. And it's yes. not the exact one from Dracula, but it is very no. clearly meant to evoke it. No, yes, I agree. It, it is a very beautiful set. I think I wrote, yeah, great set design for Mm -hmm. um the castle i think it's actually supposed to be carfax abbey which is the famous um estate that dracula purchases when he goes to london um but yes i did also make a note that this is not at all the same set from Mm -hmm. the the first dracula film where they go to kill dracula but it Mm -hmm. still looks really cool yeah and so there's there's two cops coming down this staircase and they have flashlights and so that's that's creating some visual interest with the lighting where we have Mm -hmm. these different light sources and so they get into a, the a base, the the end of the stairs in this kind of dungeon space. And there's the body of a man lying there. And they go to investigate the body, and it's um, they declare him dead, and they say that his neck was broken. And then, um, and then, Doctor Van Helsing. He's called Van Helsing in this film. He was called Von Helsing in Dracula. He comes <laughs> in, and they are immediately suspicious of him. And he's like, "I didn't kill him." The man in the other room did. And so the, yeah. the cops go, one of the cops goes to mm-hmm. investigate and it's Dracula lying in his coffin with a stake through his heart. And so then it becomes clear that this is an immediate sequel. Like this picks up at most right, an yeah. hour after the events of Dracula Which at most. Surprised me. I had no idea. Yeah. It, it picks up that quickly from the ending of the first movie which you know my nitpicky brain it irked because van helsing does not have like his gi joe crew cut from the first dracula it's like (laughs) his hair's long now and i'm like did it grow five inches in an hour well it's also a different set and it's also a little unclear how Mm -hmm. like british constables would make it to a transal no they're in london they're in yeah they're in they, they are in london um yeah, I, th- I feel like the film was also trying to do some just like lazy like humor with like the dumb copping like, yes. oh, every yeah. time. <laughs> we have a coward cop and a brave a cop. Co- yeah, and a brave cop like, you fool. And uh, yeah, yeah, so we get um, Van Helsing and um, who apparently is using like Miracle Hair Grow. Um, and yes. <laughs> they they arrest him. Yes, because it's it's actually really funny because he's super calm and he's like, I didn't yeah. like and he's like, what happened to the man with the stake through his heart? And he's like, I killed him. But for a good reason. Yeah. He was a vampire. Yeah. And, and yeah, then no, he. Yeah. And then the cops no, are like, like he's we're arresting calm. you. <laughs> yeah. No, like he's super calm and like his self-confident Van Helsing way. And also when. They call Renfield a harmless imbecile. I was like, how dare you talk about Renfield? How dare you talk about my boy that way? Not my Dwight. My poor <laughs> Dwight Fry. Um, not my Dwight. Um, not my Dwight. Yes. Uh, but yeah, also, I like. I don't know if you were thinking about this, but like, just given how calm he is and in the next scene where he's just like very calmly explaining, you know, like 
why he had to kill Dracula about vampires uh-huh. and everything to the super ridiculously understanding wants to help like chief of police or like I don't yes. know what like position this guy had but I was like well he is still an educated learned white man in the 1930s yes. so um they, I, I don't know I feel like yeah. maybe they're giving him a little more allowance here yes i mean absolutely like the fact that they didn't put him in cuffs immediately just standing there next to the corpse and admitting that he knew how he died was very odd Mm -hmm. um but another interesting thing about that scene is well with the cops you mentioned the silly moment with the cops and that's actually first of several honestly really stiff attempts at comedy throughout the film yeah but one thing that's really amazing with this scene that we get is that they there's a line of dialogue where they say this is a case for Scotland Scotland Yard and then mm-hmm. we get a card that says um like that describes the location and the name of the you know the what is it called for like the head inspector like um chief head chief yeah the chief, chief of police yeah. so that's actually like one thing that has come up a lot is that these films lack connective tissue and we don't get explanations mm-hmm. for who right. characters are and so this i thought was a really cool example of like okay they mention a location that they're going to go and the name of the person they're going to meet we get a t- title card giving further explanation and then that kind of fades into an office door opening and so this was a mm-hmm. to me a really strong example of um of you know like actually giving some setup for things and and p- locating and positioning the viewer in the narrative and yeah. so he goes you're right that he has this very calm conversation with sir basil humphrey who is the chief of police or like the head of scotland yard mm-hmm. where he very calmly <laughs> explains he's like i had a good reason yeah. for killing that man he was a vampire um and then basil is like do you have any evidence of that and he says no (laughs) and they kind of have this back and forth and he was like you do know that in this position my only two options are to send you to an insane asylum for the rest of your life or send you to the gallows i also can i just say i love how he's like i have no evidence and i can only call upon one person to help me and i'm like you literally were working with like four or five other people yes. for the entirety <laughs> yes. of Dracula who can attest to the validity of your statements. Yes. One was victimized by him and rescued an hour before the cops came. Yeah, it is. It is a little odd that he doesn't say, <laughs> well, let's let's go find the many people who were involved in this aside from and myself. And then they're just like, no, they didn't agree to come for the sequel. So, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they couldn't get um, them. I so, knew this line would probably break your brain a little bit when he's talking about the vampire and they're like, what do you, what do you mean? And Van Helsing says, well, the strength of the vampire lies in the fact that he is unbelievable. No, he's not. How many times does this have to happen? We are in the 1930s. I really like, like that line, actually. It's, it's a good line, but like you've been pointing mm-hmm. out, everyone in every single one of these movies is acting like, what is the superstitious folktale yeah. you speak of when it's like, yeah. no, no, we know what vampires are. Yeah, vampires bad. have been popular figures in fiction <laughs> for like, what, a hundred yeah. years at this point? Yeah, I um, mean, that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't mean you necessarily have to believe they're real. But, you know, just given how people act in these movies, like we're in... I don't know, the mid or late 1800s. It's like, mm, we're, we're like 50 years behind here. 
Yeah, I I agree that you de- definitely can interpret that line as like people should have heard of vampires, but I kind of read it as this idea that like so who's going to believe you if you say you were attacked by yeah. a vampire? Who yeah. is going to believe you? They're going to think fair. you're mm-hmm. crazy and it's sort of like I think it's sort of this idea of like kind of like th- not gaslighting but sort of like society almost will gaslight you of like they're not gonna believe this crazy tale you know that's yeah so i think but you're right that this scene does have some silly moments and so another thing that is kind of silly like you mentioned how ridiculous it is that he's like there's only one man who can defend me (laughs) he wasn't there and he has nothing to do with it um and he's he's like my friend dr jeffrey garth and he's like, who is that? And he's like, a psychiatrist. And it's like, <laughs> you are basing your whole defense around a psychiatrist who had nothing to do. Like, this is a god awful idea. And it kind of reminds me of Mark of the Vampire, where they're like, mm-hmm. our plan, so simple, so sure to succeed. <laughs> it's like, no. And I feel like it carries the long tradition of Van Helsing just not being all he's cracked up to be in a lot of movie adaptations it's like van helsing what are you doing yeah um he does seem kind of foolish yeah i i mean honestly if he said after everything he says and then he says he's bringing in the psychiatrist i'm kind of with the chief guy where i'm just like oh no you might need help here and we're gonna put you in a mental institute um so Mm -hmm. Yes. No, but it is it is humorously ridiculous how he would call upon this guy for help and not Mina, Jonathan, Dr. Seward, any of those other people. Yes. Or even like the stagecoach who like (laughs) wrote them there. (laughs) Who took Um, them there. Yeah. Yeah. And so this scene is interrupted by a cop coming in and being like, they're calling about the bodies. You know, what do we do with the bodies? And so then we Mm -hmm. cut to what is presumably another part of Scotland Yard or like a morgue somewhere. Um, A little unexplained and our coward cop friend um, is there. And he is kind of the other, there's two, three people in the scene. The other two are like, we're going to go drinking and carousing. And he's like, Mm -hmm. I want to come. And they're like, you're lame and a coward and we don't (laughs) like you. And you're not even a real cop yet. Um, So you have to stay (laughs) with the corpses yeah, and so this is when we get our introduction to the titular daughter of Dracula. Yes. Countess Maria Zaleska. And I I love this whole sequence that happens here. I love mm-hmm. this scene. Um, she So she comes in and she's like gorgeous and beautiful. And yes. she has these incredibly dramatic eyes with these like if those were her real eyelashes, damn, those are some genetics there. But she I, was certainly I, wearing false lashes. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I highly doubt that because it's the kind where they're super long, but it's also just like three per eye. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, they were spaced very consistently. Um, yes. But yeah. she's in this incredible kind of shrouded it's outfit. Like yeah. yeah, she's covered head to toe and she has a veil across her face. And mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that I thought was really interesting was that like now today, like she's wearing a niqab. Um, you know, she's like oh, wearing okay. a full body kind of modesty garment. That's exactly what yes. niqabs look like now. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good point. 
if, and I, I believe that's, I think I have that correct um, because hijab, hijabs are just the headscarf. So this mm-hmm. is like the full body thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, but I would be surprised if that kind of knowledge had penetrated America at that point. Um, but um, I think it, 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 for an audience in that time, it probably just would have been, oh, who is this vaguely oriental? Yeah, yeah it's exotic. Kind of you know. Exotic, yeah. 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 Like those those kind of dated um, yeah. you know, terminologies. Which, which is definitely like problematic. But the reason I mention yeah. that is because mm-hmm. I think that like people have a very, like they would have a very negative immediate, most people in America, I think, would have a pretty negative association to, you know, something like a niqab, even if they could picture it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, she comes on screen and she's gorgeous. Like she yes. looks so beautiful. She looks so, so alluring. Pleased. Yeah. And dramatic. Yeah. And it's like, you know, this is just a piece of clothing. This is just a way to right. dress your body, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. she looks incredible and she kind of like like a panther kind of stalks mm. up to coward cop yeah. and she hypnotizes him with this kind of gaudy ring mm. on her finger <laughs> but she's like look at this isn't this ring beautiful yeah how can i persuade you oh her yeah yeah so and she yes she has this really really kind of slinky voice mm-hmm. um and so she you know, hypnotizes him and she tells him to go sit in the corner and that he will remember nothing of the night. And then we get a kind of, um, she goes into the room, she looks in the coffins and she, she she specifically, I think, looks in the one with Dracula in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And for anyone who's curious, um, Lugosi was meant to be in this film. He was offered $4,000 to appear for like Mm -hmm. less than a minute I think he turned it down, said no. And so like Mm -hmm. a hyper-realistic wax bust of him was created to put in the coffins. Yeah, I was wondering that. I I figured it was just another guy because they showed it the body so quickly. I was just like, I don't think that's Bela. Um, Yeah, so it was a wax bust of him, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's possible that he still got to keep that $4,000, but there's some Mm -hmm. contention historically about that. um, also which, going back to the, I was just gonna say going back to the ring real quickly. Is this the first time we see a vampire use an object specifically for hypnosis? Because I think yeah. prior to that, it has only just been with their eyes. You're right. It is the first time that we've seen an object used, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and we've had hypnosis show up in a lot of yes. the films we've talked about. But I thought yeah. that this was kind of maybe one of the more compelling examples where yeah. I really felt drawn in by her yeah as the a later viewer. scene yeah the later yeah. scene with the psychiatrist and one of her victims with that where he's trying to get her to remember that was really mm-hmm. good yeah and and the way that she because in i think in mark of the vampire the guy is like look at this candle Doesn't the flame <laughs> yeah, flicker you're like so he just like holds me? it up and yeah him for a second and then he's yeah. like completely out, completely in this impressionable state where he's able to, yeah. So like this, I think is a much more, it feels more dramatic. It feels more compelling. It feels like it yes. fits the horror context better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then we cut to Zaleska in the forest and she removes the veil from across her face. And we get this reveal that she's like, mm-hmm. she's 
so beautiful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and she has this like really striking face, you know, this really these really dramatic cheekbones and this really sharp mm-hmm. jaw. Yeah. And she starts to give this like she starts to give this ritual and speak this kind of incantation and I have in my notes that one thing that was really exciting about this was that it was not an insert shot of a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was not like yes. some... Yay. Yeah, and so she's kind of calling upon the dead and essentially, I wish that I had written down more of the quotes from the ritual. Right. But essentially... Mm-hmm. No, I was just well, going to say, it didn't sound like anything that was religious necessarily or like from the bible or things like that it was just um yeah she's yeah giving some kind of eulogy or incantation to kind of just rid Mm -hmm. um i guess the earth the 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 space of dracula's evil and hopefully be cured also this entire time i'm watching her just from like her presence and the way she's Mm -hmm. speaking i'm like you can't tell me angelica houston was not inspired by this performance for adam's family it's so reminiscent or angelica houston's performance of morticia is so reminiscent of like what this actress is doing absolutely i think that that's like you're right that's basically undeniable like it's it's (laughs) very difficult to believe that there would be no relation in that performance yeah and yeah um, Holden, the actress who Gloria Holden, who plays Zaleska, I would say that she definitely is emulating the body language and the physical performance that Lugosi gave of Dracula mm-hmm. in terms of like the slow mm-hmm. movements and the kind of yeah. oddness. But where Dracula, I would argue, felt stiff at times, I think yeah. Zaleska feels like languid in a way, or like yeah. she has this kind of like liquid kind of more like it well, like feels more like a predator like stalking yeah, like through the panther. woods yeah yeah which is interesting the um the uh the modeling of physicality after animals um for vampirism because uh mm-hmm. when tom cruise was preparing to play Lestat, he watched a bunch of nature documentary footage of like predators like stalking mm-hmm. prey like lions and tigers yeah. and like, things like that attacking animals so um, that's an yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I was actually more on the side of I didn't know if like her body language was a little too human. Sometimes I'm like, I remember Lagosa being like really stiff because it was supposed to evoke like mm-hmm. a corpse. I'm like, yes. with her, I feel like it's less corpse like, but um, it is, it is kind of supernaturally alluring, like you're yeah. pointing out. And that's, I mean, that's an interesting point because, well, one thing is that it seems that she spends more time with humans. So there's an argument that like maybe, and she also desperately wants to be cured. It's possible that she has intentionally put effort into remaining human-like in a way that Dracula was like, why? I'm better. Like, Why do I (laughs) need to look and act like a person? That's Um, a good point. I was going to say, I think this is because when she's like saying to her, her manservant, I forget his name, um, when she's saying to him, like, I'm free, free to live as a woman, is like, I feel like she's kind of mm-hmm. our first vampire character that's, um, like, really sympathetic. I mean, we had that a bit with Condemned to Live. Yeah. But this is an example of a woman being a vampire has kind of lived with that aspect yeah. of herself for a long time and it wants to be free of it or cured. 
Yes. Yeah, I would agree because Condemned to Live, like he didn't know that he was a vampire until the very final moments. And so he finds out that he's a monster and And he can't. Yeah, and kills himself. But but Zaleska has been a vampire for what we later come to learn is 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're right that like the sympathy that we feel to her is different if you want to be sympathetic to her. Um, right. it, like the sympathy there is different because she has like suffered in this way and yes. dreamt of her freedom for right. a century. Um, mm-hmm. And I that line that you bring up, it comes up later. But that line of free to live as a woman is interesting mm-hmm. because she says, um, I can I'm free to live as a woman. I can live a normal life now. Think normal things even play normal music. And so (laughs) this is something that we will, you know, is a theme that I think we're going to talk about a lot through the rest of the episode, because one of the things that this film is very famous for is it's sapphic and like lesbian themes and undertones. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so she's making this returning to like where we are in the film. She's giving this kind of saying this ritual and I agree that it's not biblical but I I do think that there's there's almost more of like um like a Greek Roman mythology vibe to some of it um and some yeah and there's stuff of like flame because there is discussion of hell I will say so one of the things that she talks about is that she kind of talks about Dracula and his cursed life and then she Mm -hmm. talks about like and kind of allusions to Satan and his control over Dracula and vampires. And she talks about like permanently ending Dracula's life Mm -hmm. in flames and returning him to where he came from. And as that's happening, we cut out to, and this is a, while this scene starts with a really nice medium close up of her head on. And it's almost like she's delivering this like horrific sermon to the viewer. And then we cut out to a wide and we see that she's standing in front of like his burning corpse. Mm-hmm. And so as she's giving this thing, we see that she's burning his body. And then we mm-hmm. cut to a new angle where we see that there's a man with a shovel watching. Mm-hmm. And they have a once she's done burning him, she has a conversation with this man who turns out to be her kind of servant or familiar um, mm-hmm. sort of in a bit of yeah. an Igor kind of Renfield tradition. But his name is Sandor and Sandor is played by Irving Pitchell and he was an acclaimed actor and director and he founded the Berkeley Playhouse in 1923. Yeah. And he, yeah, he worked as a character actor through the thirties. And so for anyone who has heard that term before and maybe doesn't know what that means, that's kind of one of the definitions of that is a character actor is an actor known for playing unusual, eccentric, or interesting characters in supporting roles rather than leaving leading roles. And so mm-hmm. this was, yeah. he played these Sandor type roles, um, you know, very regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also Jewish. He was, uh, he was born in a Jewish family And Mm -hmm. I mentioned that because this was a time, as you can imagine, where it was difficult to be anything but like what Protestant or wasp. Yeah, like it was. Yeah, it was really difficult to be of any denomination other than Christian at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was 
you know, and obviously our proximity to World War Two here as well. Yeah. So, you know, this was mm-hmm. a guy who was like really successful, had an incredibly long, you know, career. He was an acclaimed director as well as an actor. Um, mm-hmm. And he founded that Playhouse, which is very, very cool. And mm-hmm. yeah, so they meet and they talk and then we move to i'm trying to think where we move to so we move back to her in her apartment i believe where this is where she is saying things like you know i'm able to live a normal life play normal music and she's playing her piano and um sandor is kind of um uh being a bit of a fun sponge and just being like no you (laughs) you can't um yeah he's he's a familiar with some spine he stands up to his vampire yeah yes he's uh, basically yeah because she well she says at the fire she's like we have to get home because the day is coming but tomorrow will be new tomorrow will be different Mm -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. get back and like you're saying, he's kind of the Debbie Downer and he's (laughs) saying like, he's essentially like, you're lying to yourself. Like, because she's like, tomorrow is the, my, is the first day of my new life, essentially something like that. And he says like, tomorrow is the same as tonight. Like this, like nothing has changed. And so Right, that she starts playing music and it's actually really interesting you know it's i th- i liked the way that oh, this yeah. was happened where she's playing music and she's like this is like a lullaby that you know like my mother used to sing for me um and he's like um you know and and he's like no like this is the song of death and she's like uh, and she's like the wings of birds and he's like <laughs> no these are the yeah. wings of bats and like <laughs> As it's playing, yeah, like the music yeah. is rising in fervor right. and it's like the tempo is getting faster and she is kind of like, it's almost like she's dissociating where she gets this kind yes. of far away look on her face and you can mm-hmm. feel that she's getting drawn into what he's saying and that she's losing confidence in this idea that she is no longer a vampire and that she has changed as a result of killing Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, and she's wearing another gorgeous outfit in this oh, scene. Sure. She has this beautiful V-neck dress with this like bejeweled, mm-hmm. the kind of diamond trim. Yeah. Um, All and of another... her looks are are snatched in this. Yes, film. as the kids say. <laughs> yes, as the kids say, she 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 has the riz. Um, <laughs> actually, she kind of she kind of is rizzed up. <laughs> like, as silly is. as I sound saying that. No. She is. Um she she definitely she definitely does. And you know, such to the point that, you know, she can she leaves the apartment and we find that she is unable to fight her vampiric nature as she yeah. hoped. And she kills that one guy with her seductive powers. Yes. I think she uses hypnosis. Yes. Um, Could we say that she goes cruising? <laughs> through oh, the streets of london yeah. um yeah that's a good point even though her first victim is a man but we will but the way that she kind of it seems like he's coming out of some sort of event he's got he's all mm-hmm. black tie he's yeah. got a top hat he's lighting a cigarette she kind of comes up behind him she pulls out a lighter and she like <laughs> oh my god something yes. and yeah that's and she's point. it's a very yeah it's a very kind of 
seducting seducting um (laughs) it's a very like there's there's definitely like she is seducing him um no matter how you read the scene i think that she is seducing him and Mm -hmm. she hypnotized she shows him you know she's holding the lighter on the hand in the hand that she's wearing the ring and so he gets this kind of vacant look and then um and then i think we cut to the party that Jeffrey is at, or the kind of cocktail like mm-hmm. event that Jeffrey is at. Well, I think before this, we are first introduced to Jeffrey when he's about to go um, shooting or some rich British sport thing. Um, but his assistant drives up and is like, there's a man that needs your help. His name's Van Helsing. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So we get that. And then, um, and then we get, oh, and we get a beautiful shot of Zaleska closing her coffin, which is another mm. pretty direct reference to a yeah. shot in Dracula of the same yes. thing. Yes. Um, and I'll also say that that moment with the guy in the top hat when she goes cruising is the first time that we get like a hundred percent explicit confirmation that she is a vampire because up to this point she's kind of talked about the influence that dracula Mm -hmm. had and kind of being a prisoner of his or a slave of his and and that that there's like and that there's a darkness in her i think that that's how she that she describes a darkness yes Yes. and and um she she cruises as you say and seduces this one man and we get that confirmation because the next scene it's basically like the the cut they did in the original Dracula from when he drinks Lucy's blood to her on the operating table or, yes. or in the operating theater. They did yes. like basically the same exact shot with this guy. And and they're it's the same deal. They're they're like, um, the transfusion failed to save him. And I'm like, are they trying to like transfuse blood into dead bodies? Either way, they need to like work on their transfusion. So he died practices. two hours after his four of fourth four oh. fourth of four that doesn't make any sense so he died two hours after receiving a fourth okay, blood transfusion gotcha. okay. and tra- blood transfusions come up a couple times in this film so i was curious on you know like the history of that because we tried blood transfusion for you know like there is a long history of attempting blood transfusions going all the way back to like Incan civilization. And then, you know, some attempts with animal blood. And then we start trying to do blood transfusion with person to person in the early 1900s. But this Mm -hmm. was before we had discovered blood types. Right. Which is what I always wonder. Cause like, in the original Dracula novel, the men are uh, uh, offering up their blood to save Lucy because they're mm-hmm. like, she needs another blood transfusion. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to assume every mm-hmm. single one of these men here has Lucy's exact yes. blood type. I was so. wrong. It's the early 1800s, not the early oh, okay. 1900s. Yeah. So essentially, like we were doing blood transfusions and we didn't understand why some people died nearly immediately and other people yeah. lived and were completely fine. And so eventually we realized that there were different kinds of blood. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of happened around, um, let's see here. 
it seems like that didn't really happen until like the late 1840s or something like that. Um, Oh no. Even into the, so even into the late 1800s, it was still regarded as risky and dubious (laughs) and shunned by the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so then in 1901, Austrian Karl Landsteimer discovered three human blood groups and did blood trans and did blood transfusions. Um, so it was at that point that they became safer. Mm-hmm. And so obviously that is not how many blood types there actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't until like the 1910s that we really figured out how many blood types okay. they were. And we figured mm-hmm. out things that like there are universal blood types and stuff. So mm-hmm. we spent like over a hundred, we spent hundreds of years trying to do blood transfusions before we mm-hmm. realized that, you know, that blood could not just be given to anyone from anyone. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that this comes up so much in this film is maybe because like successful blood transfusion was less than 20 years old. Um, yeah, it was still pretty new practice. Yeah. And it was probably still pretty risky at the time because. Yeah. I mean, there was probably just in general, a higher risk for infection, things like that. Yeah. Like surgeons didn't like wash their hands until. (laughs) I I think by the 1930s they were washing their hands, but yeah, there was, um, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I, I, I mean, I, again, I feel like. Was it as strict as it is now? Probably not. But yes, yeah. I do. I forget when it was. It was probably in the 1800s. But one surgeon like realized, I think it was from actually um, the field of um, obstet- um, gynecology or, or um, he was mm-hmm. an obstetrician. But like he realized when women were giving birth and, you know, doctors were helping them that um, like these women, you know, it was common to get infection and to yeah. die from that after labor. And he noticed like these doctors were like delivering multiple babies, I believe, and not washing their hands in between. And he's just like, what if we just wash our hands after we like crazy concept? What if we rinse all of the blood (laughs) and amniotic fluid from our hands with soap and see what happens? Yeah, I think there's also a famous story about someone who watched like a child sustain a pretty serious injury from like a the wheel of a wagon and then the mm-hmm. person that ran to help the child wrapped like a filthy rag around the wound and the and yeah. the doctor was like that seems like maybe it would have an adverse effect <laughs> uh, well, like what if we put non-dirty bandages on open yeah hands? yeah or like if i wouldn't eat this why would i put it <laughs> in my blood you know <laughs> yeah like on like in on an open orifice in my body yeah thank you for listening to another episode of this podcast sucks find us where you get your podcasts on spotify apple music and youtube follow us on social media and give us a like you can find us at that vampire pod on x and instagram We'd love to hear from you guys. And remember, stay bloodthirsty. Stay tuned for part two of this episode on Dracula's Daughter.